Um, This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And sadly, thus ends the words of the Kohelet. Uh, If you've been around, we've been on a journey together through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've come to the conclusion. And uh, I've been in a little bit of like a mourning phase, if I'm honest. I've, I've grown very fond of the Kohelet, our wisdom teacher. And for the last several months, I've spent hours every week sitting at his feet, and as we come this morning, we're coming to his last word. The final word of this wisdom literature that has been speaking to us about the realities of life. And so as we try to both make sense of the study that we've been a part of throughout this whole time, we're also going to, in a sense, try to make sense of these final words, to let them find purchase in our soul, to bring clarity to where all we've been together. For the sake of catching us all back up, I'm just going to throw out a few words that I hope mean something to you by this point in the journey. So we know Kohelet, wisdom teacher, the gatherer and the assembler of people. Hevel, this is fog, vapor, that we live in a world that is foggy and at times confusing, and he's been telling us the truth about that. We've talked about under the sun some 35 times under the sun. We're talking about a life, an exploration of life east of Eden. We've talked about toil and money and power and wisdom and work, death and dying and a good meal with friends. That this wisdom teacher has been telling us the truth about life. We say that he's like the farmer's insurance guy that knows a few things because he's seen a few things and he's telling us the truth about what he's seen. And as we're coming to the conclusion, we're, we're just trying to pay attention to what is it that God has been wanting to do in us as a community through this holy text. For those of us who are optimists, we know that the robust biblical realism of this text has offended us at points. I've had some of my more optimistic friends say to me, I'm really ready for this to be done. This guy keeps telling me this is hard and it's hevel and there's death and dying and they're like, I'm ready for something that's a little more upbeat. And then quite frankly, there's, there's, I'm, I'm in that category, the optimist category. We sometimes need to be right-sized and reminded. Yeah, life is hard. And to the pessimists, the biblical realism of the Kohelet has provided genuine encouragement because he meets us down in the midst of the real and the difficult, but then he says, there's hope. There's a God to be feared. There's a day when the fog will lift. He meets us in the midst of the fog to make sense of, us and give, make sense of it and give us a hope for where the path is heading. You see, he's, he's been bringing us into the real into what it means to live an honest, whole life in a broken world with a God who is present but not always discernible. 
This has been the, at times, painful journey that we've been on. And as this Kohelet has spun this wisdom story, as he has told us the truth about what is, he has, like Hansel and Gretel, dropped little breadcrumbs along the way to make sure that we know how to make sense of the whole, how we know how to, how to make our way home. And the passage that we just had read over us, we're about to study together, and in a sense, what I want us to see is that this is the culmination, this is the gathering together of the breadcrumbs, this is following them to the end of the road, the reality being that this has been truth that he has been introducing, us, introducing to us as the reader slowly and surely throughout, and now he's bringing to its culmination about what is the last word? What's the end game of this journey that we have been on? And quite frankly, I think he's going to take us to this place where he's going to say that there is one voice. There's one voice in the midst of all of the fog and all of the confusion and all of the noise. There is one voice that trumps all other voices. And he's going to invite us to to seek and to keep the word of that voice to keep the word of the one who is speaking. We're gonna wrestle with what does it look like in the midst of this life to, to discern the one voice that trumps all others. It reminds me of a quote from one of my family's favorite books that I wanna to read to you and then we'll, we'll plunge into this text together. This is a book called The Silver Chair from the Chronicles of Narnia. My boys and I just started it for round four. I keep thinking at some point they're gonna give up on these books but they said yesterday, can we start the silver chair again? I said, okay. And so last night, this is what we were reading. And at the beginning of the book, King Aslan is sending Jill Pole. She's up on a high mountain and he's about to send her down into the valley. And just before he sends her, this king who is giving her clarity about the the journey that she's on and the requirements, what she's supposed to do in this wild adventure down in the valley, he says this to her. Remember, remember, remember the signs Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. Whatever strange things might happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. The signs are these markers that he's given her that will make sense of the journey for her. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do this down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear. Your mind is clear. But when you drop into Narnia, the air will will grow thick. Take care that it doesn't confuse your mind. The signs which you've learned here, they won't look like you expect them to look when you meet them there. That's why it's so important to know them by heart. Pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs. Believe the signs. Nothing else matters. In a sense, Aslan is speaking with the voice of the Kohelet. This is the last word as we come to the completion of Ecclesiastes. He's saying, listen, I'm gonna tell you the truth and the last word is this. There's one voice that's gonna lead you through all of the confusion. If you forget everything else, remember this. One voice trumps all others. Seek and keep his word. And so with our time, what I want us to do is plunge into this text and make sense of what does it mean to seek and to keep the word of this trustworthy voice. Would you look back at the text with me? And starting in verse nine through 12, the the first few verses of this passage, we're gonna see what does it mean to really seek the words of the one that's behind the fog, 
that's working in and through the fog. It says this, besides being wise, the preacher, the Kohelet, also taught the people knowledge. So he says he wasn't just wise, but his wise was made serviceable to the people, and this was how. He says, he taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed or the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. Do you see the active words that is used of this wise man as he relates to the words themselves? That when we talk about seeking the word of the one shepherd, the one who is giving, giving wisdom in and through the shadows, we see this series of active verbs that are piled up. He's saying, let me tell you how the Kohelet has come to make sense of a really confusing and broken world. And the, the verbs are, are verbs like weighing and studying and arranging with care, seeking and writing. As I was thinking about the way that this, this wise man is relating to the words of this one shepherd, it reminded me of, I don't know if you ever did in like biology class back in the day, one of those insect projects where you have the, the trifold board and you've got to arrange and identify all the different insects. I was thinking back looking at old pictures of like the, the beetle project where you have 17 different kinds of beetles and you've got to collect them and you pin them to the board and then they've got the little Latin name under, underneath and this one has a slightly different Latin name because did you notice the coloration is a bit different on the back here and the antenna are a little bit longer on this one and you start realizing the great nuance and depth in all of these creatures that are so easily overlooked. And he's going something like that, that the wise man is so curious and committed to a trustworthy voice in the midst of a confusing system that he arranges and studies and writes and loves the words. The wise man at the end of the story is saying, let me tell you how this wisdom has been found and made serviceable to others. It has been actively sought in these ways. Did you notice that the wisdom was given by the one shepherd in verse 11? That it's not mustered up, that we don't come to garner wisdom by creating it internally or being really creative and thought-provoking thought and coming up with new ideas. He's going, no, 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 let me tell you how I've come to make sense of the broken world as I've studied what has been given. I've had these moments over the last couple of weeks of really beginning to believe that revival is coming, like in our midst. And one of the moments that I grow most convinced of it is in working through what, what we around here call our individual discipleship plans. It's men and women who have joined the mission of Seven Mile Road in conjunction with the leadership in their house church and the elders of our body. They identify what are my next steps of obedience with Jesus. And I have a list of those in the back of my Bible that I pray for in the mornings. And as I've been thinking about this text and as I've been praying for you, and realizing that God is raising up scores of men and women, hundreds of men and women that are beginning to take God's word and to actively seek it in this way. To say there's so much noise in our world, 
so much confusion, so much that's upside down and twisted. There's a constant bombardment of noise and infotainment that's trying to to convince us of the way that life is. And as I start to pray for men and women by name that are saying things like, I wanna set aside daily time. I'm gonna memorize a psalm a month. Or I'm going to begin to meditate on this book of the Bible. I'm doing this study and I'm beginning to pray for it and trying to make it serviceable to others by sharing what God is doing in me with my neighbors and these people that I'm praying for. As I pray for these before God, I've had this deep sense like wisdom and power and life flood in when a community starts to say, we're gonna seek your word in this way. We're gonna seek your face in this way. Just as an aside, forgive me, but I I can't help but say it. On Wednesday night, we had 170 people gathering together to pray, and a friend of mine leading us in prayer from, from San Diego, and he was saying, you know, in great studies of revival in the past, When people begin to gather and pray, you know that revival, it's not coming, it's already here. To get people that will take God seriously to study and weigh and arrange his word and respond wholeheartedly calling out to him, this is where we begin to experience God move. You see, the wise man and the wise woman, they seek God's word actively. And the reason that they're doing it The reason that we are called to seek God's word, did you see the words, um, look back verse 11 and 12 at the conclusion, it says these words, uh, or pardon me, verse 10, it says the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. There's this interesting thing going on here that in some ways when we're studying and arranging the words that come from above, powerfully from the one shepherd above, they all of a sudden defy categorization because in some ways what we just read, those both beg, the descriptors about this word that's being cherished beg to be categorized as either from the left or from the right. Let me explain. On the the left, you've got this, this vision of words of delight. It means artistic expression that causes an emotional response, that we, would be, that we would be engaged artistically in the text. And then he says these words are like a goad. And a goad was a stick with a sharp end that would be used to press cat, it's like a cattle prod basically, keeping the sheep or the cattle moving forward. And quite frankly, when we think about the way that we might view the word of God coming from a more progressive angle, We think about it as an artistic expression that motivates us. We should care about social justice. Look at the beauty of the text and the beauty of this God. Keep moving, keep being prodded forward. But then he says, he's writing the words of truth and he calls it a nail firmly fixed. This, if you're from more of like a Bible church background, this is the way you've come to think about the words of wisdom. The idea being that it's all about capital T truth that there is a word. He says a nail firmly fixed. This is, a, this is an image for the Hebrew mind that would immediately make sense, that in the walls of a Hebrew home, they would drive a nail, and this is where you would hang your utensils or your tools if you were a carpenter. The idea being that this is a place where you can hang your hat. This will hold. And so on the one hand, he's saying, the reason we study the words of wisdom from above is because it is capital T true. It's a fixed point. It brings order out of chaos. But it's not just that. And it's not just 
It's not just words of delight that are artistic and that cause our hearts to sing and prod us to move forward. He's saying it's all of that. We're not a people that come from the right or the left. We're a people that situate ourselves before that which comes from above. And we say, God, your voice is so uniquely different. Our God is not liberal. And our God is not conservative. Our God speaks with authority from on high in a way that brings together the beauty and the power of the right and the left because it's from a different place altogether. He's saying it's artistic and it will prod you towards social justice and being engaged. It will move you forward. It's true that it's firmly fixed and it'll help you make sense of the worldview by which you view the world. He's saying where else will you go to find a voice like this? that defies all categories, that cannot be politicized, that rains down with authority from on high. He's saying, seek my word. If you're going to experience the power and the wisdom and the beauty of God, we must seek his word. You see the Kohelet's coming to the conclusion and he's trying to say, how can we summarize in the midst of all of this heaven? And the first thing is he's saying, you have to seek this word actively. You have to love it. It reminds me of Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, a prophetic work written a a generation ago talking about the way that that screens ultimately are gonna rob a culture of its soul. Highly recommend the read. But at one point he says this. He says, we've become a community that just wants the beauty. We wanna move from flowers to flowers. And what he's talking about is he's envisioning a world where we have living rooms that are surrounded on all four sides by screens and we just enjoy all the entertainment constantly. He wrote this in the 50s. And he said, "And, and quite frankly, we've forgotten how to be quiet. We've forgotten how to hold a holy text and let it read us. And he says this, you see, flowers don't grow on flowers. Flowers grow on a good rain and black loam. Rich, dark soil underneath the surface that's being saturated with a good rain. He says that's what produces beauty in life. God help us if we become a people that get so flattened out that we don't know what it is to think deeply about what matters most. You cannot outsource your thinking, your praying, and you're meditating to Google. We think because we have access to all the information, we no longer have to go deep, and what he's saying is, listen, the path of the wise that makes sense of a heaven-ridden world is one that knows what it is to go into the place of the deep black loam and seek the word of the one shepherd. Oh, that God would raise up a community that thinks differently and speaks differently about the world because we've been formed in secret moments with a heavenly word. You see, the first mark is that we have to seek his word. We seek it. But that's not all. You see, in verses 13 and 14, he turns this corner and he says it's not just about seeking it. It's not just about amassing his word, but it's about keeping it. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says the end of the matter. Robert Alter's translation is the last word. He's bringing us to the last word. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
Do you hear it? He says it's the whole duty of man. He's saying zoom out. That in the moment to moment, we'll think about all the duties that we have, all the ways that we wanna respond to God in the moment to moment. He's going, yes, yes, God's call in your life will look different in different places in different ways, but zoom all the way back out and take this in. The wisdom of the Kohelet is saying this, fear God and keep his commandments. And this, these are the breadcrumbs. This is not the first time he's introduced this. This isn't, um, as some would argue, they would say that these last few verses were written by a different author, trying to kind of appease all of the, the emotion and the churning of the Kohelet. But the truth is, I, I reject that because when you sit with this text for an extended season, what you begin to realize is this has been the theme that he's been slowly developing all the way throughout. And chapter three and five and seven and eight, in the midst of the heaven, he'll pause and he'll say, listen, fear God. Justice feels slow, but it's coming. Fear God, he says time and again. And when he gets to the end, he says, listen, I've been telling you all along, but maybe in the midst of everything, you've missed it. Listen, this is the last word. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, the phrase fear God in the Old Testament is the equivalent of New Testament saving faith. Fear God means see him as grand and beautiful and believable and stunning and trust him with all that you are. Fear him. Fear God. And the truth is that if we, if we apply point one, if we are a people comfortable with a good rain and, and black loam, if we're, if we're good going to the secret place and weighing and studying and arranging God's words that are given from on high, if we go to that place, what will begin to happen in our souls is a fear and a reverence for God that begins to grow. And we'll start to see the power of his word in a way that cuts through all of the other voices all of the confusion that surrounds us, if we will make the time and provide the energy of just going, God, we fear you, we're seeking your word, we will begin to say, and there is no other word that I wanna keep in all the world like yours. He's saying the final word is this, fear God and keep his word. And the reason he says it, did you catch it at the conclusion? Verse 14, why do we keep his word? Verse 14 starts with the word for. That could read because, that's a grounds clause. You see it in verse 14, it says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He uses that word every two times to drive home the point. And the point is this, judgment is coming. Why do we fear God and keep his commandments? Because one day, the fog will lift. Now we felt this in, in, the, in the exploration of the hevel, there's so many moments along the way where we've dealt with things that are just evil and broken, right? We've said that the good die young and the wicked prevail and keep living. And a couple of weeks ago as we were studying the text, it told us that trying to discern what is God doing in this moment is a fool's errand because we can't tell. It's like this impenetrable veil that, that God's activity, moment to moment, we don't know what he's doing. We can't figure it out. And some days, the pessimist wants to just throw their hands up and go, well, wh why does it even matter? If confusing things are gonna happen and the righteous are gonna die young and the wicked are gonna prevail, I'm done with all of this. And he's going, no, 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 you haven't been listening. Listen, listen. 
Fear God and keep his commandments because judgment is coming. Every deed, every secret work, everything that has gone on, God sees it all. And it will all be called to account. This is both incredibly encouraging and incredibly frightening, is it not? For those of you who have endured great atrocity, sadness, one of the great privileges of my role and my call from God is I get to sit with people and hear about the tragic. It's heavy, like the things that have been done to you. Some of you, the things that you still haven't put words to with anyone and you go, how could there be a God when this goes on? Receive this encouragement, God sees. And he's gonna call that evil deed to account. One day the fog will lift and God has not forgotten. He's going to balance the scales of justice. Yet, here we are in the midst of the fog realizing that sometimes We're the perpetrator. And God's saying, every deed, I see it all and I'm gonna call it to account. You see, one day the fog is going to lift and everyone's going to to be seen for exactly what they are. He's saying, this is the last word. Fear God and keep my commandments because judgment is coming. And into this space, we say, well, How is it ultimately that this is a hopeful word? Kohelet, are you really gonna leave us here? And I just wanna, I wanna finish by by examining a really important phrase right in the middle of this passage that I think is so crucial to him bringing us to conclusion on this work. Look back at verse 11b with me. It says, they are given by one shepherd. This is a really intriguing phrase as you begin to weigh and to study and to arrange God's word, arranging it on its board and trying to figure out where things fit, if you do that with this passage and all of a sudden you come to this phrase, you begin to realize this is a really unique phrase biblically. God is talked about as a shepherd throughout the scriptures, but this idea of but the one shepherd without any direct reference to God leaves people going, well, what exactly is the Kohelet talking about? There's actually been a lot of argument about this among commentators on Ecclesiastes. But there's this beautiful hint that I think is baked into the text that this phrase is used on the lips of a couple of other authors also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit throughout the scriptures. And I just wanna show them to you real briefly. In Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 23, we read this. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now, let's just be clear, this is, four, this is written 400 years after David had died. But he's saying, I'm gonna set up one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And then again, Ezekiel 37 says, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes that this prophet, picking up on the same terminology, says this, we are longing for the day of hope and healing and it's going to come when the one shepherd is speaking and leading, when it's his statutes that we're responding to and that we're keeping. And he said, it's going to be the one that comes in the line of David. Now very clearly, these are 
prophetic utterances pointing to King Jesus. And Jesus, when he steps onto the scene in John chapter 10, he actually calls himself a shepherd. And then in the midst of teaching about what is the good shepherd, in John 10 verse 16, he actually says this, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. Now these are the only times that this phrase is used in the whole of the Bible. Jesus in all of his wisdom and his might is standing in the midst of the people and they're not missing what he's saying here, by the way. Because it's at the end of this teaching that Jesus secures his faith that he is going to be killed. They're trying to execute him at the end of this teaching because they realize when he's teaching that I am the good shepherd, that he is saying I am the divine one. I am the one whose voice comes from on high, not from the right or from the left. I can't be categorized or politicized. I have authority over every voice because I am the one voice. Jesus calls himself the one shepherd over which the sheep, God's people, will be drawn. And it was his teaching, it was his boldness about his own divinity that secured his faith, that he was crucified. And ultimately what was happening at the crucifixion was the judgment of God was being poured out for every secret deed. Everything that happens in the fog, everything that you and I have contributed to was put onto this man and he was put into a tomb and a large stone was rolled into place. Large stones were put in place to communicate judgment both in this life and in the next. The idea was that this large stone has been put into place and shall not be moved because this one is pinned to the earth. But three days later, the, the, the stone rolled away and the tomb was empty. And the beautiful reality is this, that Jesus, the crucified and resurrected one who paid for every secret deed, we learn through the apostles preaching in Acts 17, I just want one last verse, I wanna show this to you. In Acts 17 and verse 31 it says this, the times of ignorance God has overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the picture of that final judgment that's coming. Hear this, brothers and sisters. One day, the fog is gonna roll back and it's gonna roll back fast and furious. The sky is gonna be peeled back and everything is going to be tested and purified by holy fire. And there will be one voice that matters the one shepherd, the one who came and conquered death, who took judgment into his bones, and so now he has mercy to extend to those who trust in his word. And one day, he will sit on the throne and we will be exposed in all that we are with every secret deed, and it will only be those that say, your price, the price that you paid on the cross is for me because I fear God. I have trusted you, King Jesus, the one shepherd over my life. You see, the Kohelet has faithfully prodded and shepherded like a goad towards glory. He's poking and prodding. He's saying, yes, the world is broken. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's confusing. What are you gonna do in the midst of the fog? Fear God. Know that one day the scales of justice will be balanced and there will only be one voice that matters on that day. One voice will matter. Seek and keep his word. This 
This is the last word. This is the end of wisdom. Please, don't miss it. I've been praying for men and women that might be in the room that have yet to say yes to Jesus. Oh, it's... There's a day coming. It's real. Judgment is coming. The pinnacle of wisdom is that you would listen to the only voice that matters. I love you, Jeremiah. Love you too. One voice trumps all others. Seek and keep his word. Let me pray for us. Keep us, God. Protect us from our folly. We are a foolish and a forgetful people. I love so many other voices and I prioritize them over yours because they don't cost me as much. They're not as challenging. They don't call for death to my old man. I pray that you protect us from the folly of our selfishness, of our small thinking, of all of our noise. King Jesus, we love you. Thank you for coming for us. Thank you for taking judgment into your bones so that you with authority could sit on the throne and extend forgiveness to those who are found in you. I pray that we would be men and women who chase and cherish your word and walk in alignment with it. We pray this, God, for your glory, for our joy. In the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. Well, each week we get to come to the table to be reminded that this one shepherd, the pinnacle of all wisdom, laid down his life that we might have it in full. And so for those of you who have trusted in this Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, we'd ask that during this time you get to come to his table on a seat with your name on it uh, and to partake in this.